0: WNYC is teaming up with NPR to bring you a new daily podcast, Consider This. We'll bring you the biggest news stories and what's happening in our community to help you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Metal Bowl by Miranda July, which was published in The New Yorker in September of 2017.
0: If I protested, I'd only make his case stronger. I'm less fun than my own butt. Which is not untrue. In my essence, I am a stone, unmoving for 10,000 years, unless picked up and moved.
1: The story was chosen by Emma Klein, who published her first novel, The Girls, in 2016. Hi, Emma. Hi, Deborah. So The Metal Bowl was published, as I just said, less than two years ago. Did you read
0: it when it first came out? I actually first heard it. Um, and I don't normally listen to many audiobooks or people reading aloud. But I was on a road trip and happened to listen to Miranda July read the story after it was published. Mm-hmm. I was just so struck by it, and it, I was in a sort of lull with reading where I I just hadn't been engrossed in something in a long time or something had gone a little bit dull, and then something about this story was just so peculiar and so apt that it really got me excited about stories again and, and the possibilities for stories. Mm-hmm. What do you think it was about the story? I think... The way that she explicates certain emotions or thoughts in, in a way that I had just never seen before, but but in a way that also gave me that sense of recognition or familiarity. Even the first paragraph, I think, when she's talking about her orientation towards life as this sort of endless, gratuitously drawn-out experience that she's trying to get over with all at once, It just felt very familiar, and (laughs) I had never felt like it had been articulated in that way before. It just got me very excited.
1: Yeah. Were you already a fan of Miranda July's work at that point?
0: I had read the first Bad Man and loved it, and it was similarly strange, sort of off to the side of other fiction I'd read. I don't know how to say it in a better way almost like it was circling around the alley of Mm -hmm. fiction and doing something really interesting with it. And I think it's easy to think maybe it's because she is a filmmaker and an artist and sort of has these other references, but I think she's just a great fiction writer and so singular. Um, So I'd read that novel. I've only actually seen one of her movies, The Future, but that also, I, I felt like that in this story... That movie and this story had some resonance with each other Mm -hmm. just in terms of exploring these intimate relationships and sort of atomizing them. So I think most people
1: probably come to her first as a filmmaker. You know, she's made these two feature films, which she also starred in. And sometimes when you do more than one thing, people sort of assume that you're a dilettante. Do you think of her as a writer first?
0: I think that's how... I have the strongest reaction to her, just because that's sort of the world that I'm in, and but, uh, I don't know. i I wish that I was good at more than one thing. I think it's <laughs> great that she she is so good at so many things. I think it's really exciting um, and sort of inspiring to see someone get to sort of explode their subjectivity in all these different directions. I'm jealous. <laughs>
1: Okay, well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Emma Klein reading The Metal Bowl by Miranda July.
0: The Metal Bowl. He cupped the two halves of my tush and spoke directly to them. Run away with me, girls, he whispered. She doesn't understand our love. I lay still, staring out the window, letting them have their time together. If I protested, I'd only make his case stronger. I'm less fun than my own butt. Which is not untrue. In my essence, I am a stone, unmoving for 10,000 years, unless picked up and moved. It's not just sex. I find this whole experience, life, gratuitously slow and drawn out. See it crawl, second by fucking second. If I'm a workaholic, it's only because I hate work so much that I'm trying to finish it. All of it, once and for all. So I can just ride out the rest of my life in some kind of internal trance state. Not a coma, but like a step above that. Our son, Sam, trotted in sleepily, and I warned him not to get in the bed. It's all bloody. Alex quietly removed his hands from my body. He hadn't noticed that I was bleeding. Sam pulled back the sheets and studied the mess, smiling giddily. You got your period. Yes. You said it was coming soon, and you were right. Yet. This new generation of men has been taught by me to feel excited about the menstrual cycle. It's like tadpoles turning into frogs or the moon that follows them wherever they go. I've been waiting a long time to have my period cheered on. More and more women my age have given up on our men and are getting together with millennials, youngsters raised by women who were born in the 60s rather than the 40s. I hear it's great, not a lot of hang ups, but that isn't an option for me because I need a man with a historical perspective that encompasses my whole lifetime. If anything, I regret not having met Alex sooner. If we had met at my birth and I had been able to assess how narcissistic my parents were, I could have left the hospital with Alex and got started on our relationship immediately. He would have been eight years old, young, but not too young to keep me alive. I need that in a man." Sometimes my love for him is so intense that I want to crawl inside his body. I want him to be pregnant with me and never give birth, just hold me in. At other times, I wonder, who is that guy? Why is he in my house? When I get that look on my face, he sticks out his hand and says, Hi, I'm Alex, your husband. Sam used his small pointing finger to tap each old blood stain on the sheet. They dated back more than a decade, a disgusting constellation. It was one of those things you didn't notice until suddenly you did. Like ants. Like everything. I dressed and brushed my teeth. If I went to the mall immediately and got a new sheet, then the chore wouldn't have time to gather weight. Once a task goes on the to-do list, it settles in, grows roots. The trick is to preempt that. I could get a tent light while I was there. We were going camping the next weekend with another family, although unfortunately I wasn't sure I'd be able to join. Too much work to do. I can get new sheets, Alex said, slowly climbing out of bed, limb by limb. Sam asked if we'd be watching TV today, yes or no. Not sheets, just one fitted sheet. There's only one place that sells Caraloha brand California King sheets individually. What is it? Macy's? Nope. Amazon? Definitely no. I told you about my bad experience. You did. I forgot. Bedding is an unregulated corner of Amazon where companies charge radically different prices for the same bad sheets. You can't even get nicer sheets by paying more. Money has no meaning there. And don't bother typing in words like Egyptian cotton or thread count. You're just offering them more precise ways to bamboozle you. Get up, find your keys in your purse, and go outside. I hate it as much as anyone, but sometimes you just have to. My plan was to park on the street and walk into the mall, get the sheet, and go. By not parking in the parking garage, I would outwit the psychology of the mall designers who wanted you to sever ties with the outside world. But walking in off the street was disorienting. I entered through Bloomingdale's and had to wade through the store. It was like pushing through coats to enter Narnia. Once I made it into the mall, I had no idea where I was. It took me a long time even to find a map, and then I traced my finger back and forth between You Are Here and the low-cost luxury sheets kiosk to memorize my path. The man standing next to me took a picture of the map and then trekked on, studying his phone. Pretty clever. As I walked, I glanced sideways at his tan, brawny body and floppy brown hair just to confirm. Yes, he was a famous person, an actor, or maybe a hotelier. Maybe this was Andre Bellage or whatever his name was. No, an actor. Electricity revved through my veins for no particular reason just as a courtesy to his stature. I kept an eye on him as I walked toward the sheet kiosk, bracing myself for the moment when he would peel off in another direction. But he didn't. We continued walking alongside each other, and I began to feel that we were together. And he kept looking at me, out of the corner of his eye. This couldn't be true, but it was. Somewhere between Baby Gap and Lady Footlocker, the tables had turned. Now he recognized me, I was 22 when the video was shot. I needed quick money so I could get out of a bad relationship. Not a lot, just first and last in a security deposit. I couldn't admit my plight to my parents because I had already done this and they had written me a check with great relief and that was what my quasi-abusive boyfriend and I had been living off for the past six months. He had come up with the ploy. Make it sound bad, but not too bad. Don't say I hit you. Say I threw a chair at you or something. You did throw a chair at me. Obviously, I wasn't fully serious when I did that. I felt obligated to stay until my parents' money ran out, since asking for it had been his idea. Then he punched not my face, but the wall right next to my face, and I had to move very quickly from terror to concern and rush him to the emergency room where a young, temporary doctor said that we could either wait four hours for the real doctor to arrive and fix the bone in my boyfriend's hand, or let him have a go. The temporary doctor high-fived me after he'd popped the bone back in. The next morning, I woke up early and walked down to the cluster of newspaper boxes in front of the old people's bar and discreetly pulled out the sex-themed paper. I'd always known that this option would be there for me if I really needed it, just as my parents were there if I really needed them, except for this one time. I chose the job that seemed to offer the most money for a one-time deal— I thought that they would shoot it in a hotel, but it happened in an apartment, on an old couch. I wasn't directed so much as given a series of props to make my way through, like an obstacle course. A turquoise teddy bear, a pillow, an empty beer bottle, a metal bowl. Not everything was clear to me, the bowl. But I was too nervous to speak. I just laughed again and again to demonstrate consent. My biggest fear was that one of these men, the man with the lights or the cameraman, would misinterpret my nervousness and halt everything, shutting down the set on the ground that I was being objectified against my will. At that age, I assumed that everyone, deep down, was a feminist, so one had to be careful not to trigger feminism where one didn't want it. I was waiting for a costume, something black and sexy or pink and trashy, that would help catapult me out of myself. Instead, a man with a baseball cap, who was maybe the director, just said, Okay, we're rolling. I was in shorts, a t-shirt, and sandals. I looked down at my shirt. It was from a sushi restaurant in my hometown, but if you just glanced at it, you might think it was racist because of the fake Asian lettering. I imagined thousands of viewers waiting for this racist girl to get herself off. I quickly undressed and made a scissors gesture to the camera to indicate that this first part, the part with the racist shirt, should be cut. No one acknowledged this suggestion, so I rubbed against the teddy bear and rode the big pillow. I held the bowl, uncertain, and then set it aside. I put the beer bottle into my vagina. With all this moving around, it was impossible to become even slightly turned on. Back then, I had to shut my eyes and make my body completely stiff to generate any feeling. But no one said anything until after I'd heaved my last fake orgasmic sigh. Okay, we got that, a woman with a clipboard said. The man in the baseball cap gave me a firm nod like a satisfied coach. I understood then that the $550 fee was not the price of my beauty or my sex appeal. It was my naivete that I'd sold. Every person, no matter how plain, has one great erotic performance in her, the one in which she doesn't know what she's doing and is desperately trying to save her life. A second performance would be a copy of the first, which would require skills I didn't have. My face wasn't anywhere you could see it unless you entered a credit card number and clicked past dozens of professionals—college beauties, hot Korean girl, and so on. But a few people made it through the gauntlet. The first time I was recognized was at a healthy Mexican restaurant. A pale man in gym clothes stared at me for a long time before making a scissors gesture in the air. It was electrifying, as if all my clothes had fallen off at once. I looked away, but there was no denying our intimacy. He'd come while watching me. The next one was a father with his family. He scissored his fingers down low, surreptitiously. The last was a butch lesbian teenager. She just walked right up to me and asked. Each time, I'd hurry home and enter my credit card number, clicking quickly past the College of Beauties and the hot Korean girl. Though I'd felt nothing at the time, seeing myself through these people's eyes was profound and overwhelming. I'd cry out with abandon, my body would shake and shiver as I came. Then I'd sleep, immediately, for at least two hours. The video shoot became the central sexual experience of my life. To this day, I can't orgasm unless I imagine that I'm the pale man, the dad, or the young lesbian watching it sometimes all of them together, crowded around one computer screen. I'm them, I'm me, I'm them, I'm me, I come. I showed it to each boyfriend I had after that, to blow their minds, but also to explain my sexual orientation. I was oriented around myself in that video and anyone who'd seen it. There was only one boyfriend I didn't tell. He was a very classy man, emotionally speaking, and I didn't want to give him any indication of basket casery. After I married him, I kept meaning to bring it up, to draw him into the fold of my sexuality, such as it was. But I waited too long. We were so close now. And after the butch lesbian, there was a lull, a 17-year lull, in which no one recognized me. I arrived at the luxury sheets kiosk and the brawny man with floppy brown hair idled a few feet away, trying to decide what to do. The scissoring gesture didn't seem to occur to him. I ran my hand over the sheets while the cashier rang up a tall woman who kept adding one more thing. His eyes met mine and I gave him a secret little smile. Truth is, I wanted to collapse with relief. Though a lot had happened in the past 17 years, marriage, a child, my career, it was suddenly clear to me that I'd only been going through the motions, an exhausting simulation. I wasn't a stone. I was one of life's biggest fans, the best example of a living thing. The amateur sex video was like a seed I had planted in my youth. It would always sustain me. Not financially, but by sending me these messengers when I was most in need. My blood moved around in my body. I felt the purpose of every muscle. I was ready to dance. And just then a beep began, so I rocked my hips and pressed my wrists together. "'swinging them like a girl in bondage "'who nonetheless wanted to party. "'The beat ended abruptly. "'It was the tall woman's ringtone. "'Hello,' she answered impatiently. "'She had enough going on with all these sheets. "'I couldn't believe I danced to her ringtone. "'Maybe it was okay. "'Who knows? "'Who can really see themselves? "'He was approaching. "'He was nearly beside me, "'his face open with surprise. "'I opened myself, too. "'You're my neighbor.' he said. "'In what sense?' I said, my eyes twinkling. "'Well, in the sense that I live in the house next door to yours.' "'The house on the corner?' "'Yeah, it's a duplex. We live in the apartment that faces Amador Street.' "'Oh, do you park on Amador?' I was bringing up parking just to hurt myself. I hated this conversation. "'I park on Amador, and my wife parks in the garage,' he said. "'Although lately we've been trying to ride our scooters more. I'm Joel.' I thought about bringing up my husband, tit for tat, but I was too tired. The previous few seconds had taken everything out of me. We parted, saying that we would definitely see each other soon. Ha ha. I drove the long way around the block to avoid Amador Street on my way home. I parked and turned off the car. It was hot, but I left my seatbelt on, folded my hands in my lap, and took some slow breaths. Before Joel, I had still believed I could be recognized. Now I knew I was too old. How do you mourn that kind of loss? It just pulls your whole life down. My phone rang. Alex, are you home? Yes, I'm in the driveway. Yeah, we heard you drive up. You coming in? In a sec, I need to pour my heart out to someone so I can be empty and unburdened when I come inside. I waited for him to say, you can pour your heart out to me, but he was quiet and we got off the phone. He never takes the bait which is good. It teaches me to be more direct in asking for what I need. Or does it? So far, it hadn't. We'd been tunneling toward each other for years. It was hard work, but the assumption was that eventually our two tunnels would connect. We'd break through, hallelujah, clay-encrusted hands finally seizing each other, and we would be together, really together, for the remaining time that we were alive. So long as we both dug as hard and as fast as we could, everything would work out. But of course, neither of us knew for sure how the other person's digging was going. One of us might have been doggedly tunneling toward the other person, while the other person was curling away in another direction. That person might not even have been aware of how off course he or she was. One of us might have tunneled straight down for a few weeks in anger, and then tried to get back on track, but now honestly had no idea where to go. We might break through, hallelujah, only to find that we were seizing the dirty hands of a stranger. What to do then? Or we might simply get tired and stop digging, decide that here was good enough, all the while saying things like, we must be getting close, and I can't wait until that day finally comes. We might never meet up at all. We might die before it happened. Or worse, maybe there had never been any hope of our meeting up because what was that even a metaphor for? Oneness, a child's dream of love. I got out of the car and went inside, carrying the new fitted sheet in the tent light. The next weekend, I was unfortunately not able to go on the camping trip. I stood in the driveway and waved goodbye to Alex and Sam, tearful for no reason. Then I went inside and walked around the house, room by room, looking at all our stuff through the judgmental eyes of a monk or a nun. I did my work, very slowly, over the course of the day. At 8 p.m. I started watching TV, and at 2 a.m. I turned out the light. Then the earthquake happened. I flew out of bed and moved down the hallway like a person on a wobbly rope bridge. I lurched out the back door and along the side of the house to the sidewalk. The shaking stopped. The streetlights were off, no moon. Car alarms were beeping in syncopation. A huge branch was draped across my car. Someone was standing on the corner waving. It was Joel. I had successfully avoided interaction all week. Now I ran to him through the dark. I didn't get my shoes, I yelled dumbly as the pavement trembled again. Joel thought it was safest to stay outside. I thought so, too. Less stuff to be trapped under if it fell. He called his wife, who was in Sun Valley, Idaho. I didn't call Alex, since I was safe, and a middle-of-the-night call is always alarming. Joel's earthquake survival kit was more elaborate than ours. We spread out high-tech blankets and pillows on the lawn on his side of the duplex and lay down, waiting for dawn. Once the car alarms had been silenced, the night was strangely quiet. The freeways were almost empty. Without the lights or the hum of cars, the sky took its place as the foremost thing. Joel and I stared up at it, an enormous gray arena we could fly around in just by lying there. Looking at the sky should be a ride at Disneyland, Joel said. This was such an accurate way to describe it. I thought about the accuracy for two or three minutes and then said, yeah. We squinted at our houses in the dark and saw that they were leaning. They had shifted. I thought we'd probably move rather than repair ours, Joel's was a rental, so he said they'd move for sure. Maybe to Ireland. I said we'd probably move to Ireland, too. The chances seemed high that we would be neighbors again in Ireland. We scooted toward each other for warmth, and when I turned on my side, Joel spooned me very innocently. All bodies were good, I realized. Joel's stocky form beside me was unfamiliar, but good. Hugging. It hit me like a ton of bricks. Hugging was so moving, so basic. Why had I ever taken pride in not being a hugger? Two people embracing was the very building block of life. Hugging is the building block of life, I whispered. Joel was quiet, and this was exactly right. More words would just take away. I pressed my hand against the lawn, palming the whole earth like a gigantic basketball. Warm tears ran into the hair at my temple one after another, after another. Hello, stranger, I thought. And by stranger, I meant not Joel, but myself. My blood moved around in my body. I felt the purpose of every muscle. It didn't matter that he hadn't seen the video. When I awoke, it was light out, and I was lying with the next-door neighbor on his lawn. I could tell right away that our houses were fine. It took only 15 minutes to straighten up the books and the dishes that had fallen. The earthquake had been big, but no one was saying that it was the big one. When Alex and Sam got home, I told a story about hiding under the dining room table. Our earthquake, the one that Joel and I had survived, was private. I friended him on Facebook the next day and we started emailing. Mostly we wrote about details from that night. The silence, the sky, how time had seemed to stretch out. I didn't have any specific or adulterous plans. I was just wholly open. I saw us going on a road trip, or maybe taking ayahuasca and throwing up in buckets. His penis was moving in and out of me most of the time. Sometimes I made it very small, like a finger, so that it wouldn't distract me too much as I worked or emptied the dishwasher. Just a little thrusting tick-tock that drowned out the real sound of time. 7 a.m., 4 p.m., 6 p.m., the most brutal of times representatives, but hardly the whole battalion. I was waiting for Joel's response to my last email when Alex and I stumbled on him, almost literally. We were coming home from a date night. Joel and his wife were lying on their lawn, staring up at the evening sky. They'd brought out the same pillows and blankets and a bottle of wine. It was adorable in a way that people like us find cloying, so Alex raised his eyebrows at me before calling out to them. Sorry, we usually park further up, but the trash cans are out. No, no, Joel said, rising to his feet. We're good. He swept his hand toward their reenactment. It's a lot more fun without all the shaking. His wife raised her glass toward me and smiled. She knew the whole story. Alex nodded, cocking his head curiously in my direction. I stared at the familiar blue geometric pattern of the pillowcases. Joel had taken the exquisite energy of our experience and plowed it back into his marriage. How wise. This option had never occurred to me. I had always detonated each thing in the very place where I found it. Even after I acknowledged that I hadn't hidden under the dining room table as I said I had, Alex was still confused. We'd been reading in bed for less than 30 seconds when he started up with the questions again. "'It's just so unlike you. You hate camping. "'I know, it was an extreme situation, "'and you've never once said hi to the neighbors. "'And I still don't want to. "'Joel is a completely uninteresting person.' "'This was now true again.' "'I turned out my light. "'He left his light on and lay next to me, waiting, "'leaving a space for my confession. "'I had done nothing. Nothing. "'My heart pounded nonetheless,' the dumb beast. Just as I started to roll over, Alex turned to me and used his big hands to pull all my hair back, stretching my face into surprise. He held me like this, studying my posture of alarm, then let go abruptly and fell onto his back in frustration. We embarked on a silence. It grew and grew until it was a sort of God that we could only submit to. After 15 or 20 minutes, I almost giggled, somebody say something. And then I realized with horror that he was probably asleep. This wasn't our silence. It was mine alone. I lay paralyzed as it hollowed and darkened, expanding in every direction with a familiar cruelty. Hello, stranger. Once, many years ago, Alex had saved me from this black hole with the kind of understanding that makes everything else in life possible. Even in gratitude. He shifted under the covers and I held my breath. If he was awake, I would try. If he was asleep, I would sleep too and probably forget to try or forget that it mattered or what I meant by try, try to be brave. Are you awake? I whispered, wide awake. I sat up and told the story of the video starting with my quasi-abusive boyfriend and ending with meeting the neighbor twice. Alex was mostly quiet only asking a few questions. What was the bowl for? I left out the hugging and the emailing and the tick-tocking tiny penis, but still, when I was finished, he silently walked out of the room. I took a breath and held it. I had made a terrible mistake. Why had I done this? My mind stopped, poised to shatter. Then he came back, holding his computer. He solemnly opened it in front of me, like a violin case before a maestro. I typed in the URL. The website looked a little different, but the major landmarks were still there. You need a credit card to get to it. He left and came back with his wallet. He typed in his credit card number, and I clicked around. I wasn't sure where to go because the college beauties and the hot Korean girl were gone. It was all new girls. They looked extremely young. I scrolled in a daze. Brunette, underage, small tits. I stopped clicking. "'When was the last time you saw it?' Alex said quietly. "'I don't know. I have it pretty memorized, so I don't need to. "'Not since we've been together.' "'Oh, I think they update, you know, just for the viewers. "'It seemed obvious now that they wouldn't still have a video from the 90s. "'Yeah, of course. I just thought maybe they had a section for alumni or... "'I don't know.' "'I shut the computer.' It was too bad, really too bad. How bad? The consequences would be enormous, I felt. Alex was in the kitchen now, opening cupboards. He came back with a teddy bear, an empty beer bottle, and a bowl. He picked up his pillow and pulled the comforter aside, arranging everything along the foot of the stripped bed. I can't recreate it, if that's what you're thinking. It was true amateur porn, not fake. I understand the real deal. The people who saw it, they were really overcome by it. It was their top video to watch, porn-wise. As we talked, Alex seemed to be riding the pillow slightly, maybe unconsciously. You're talking about the pale man. The pale man, the dad, and the butch girl, yes. Now he was rubbing the teddy bear against his crotch. He slid off his boxer shorts. Well, well now. I sat back. He was very much an amateur. He didn't know what he was doing, and he was desperately trying to save his life. I'd never seen him move his hips like that. It was funny, or no, actually not funny, just disorienting, slightly grotesque. He picked up the beer bottle, and after a moment of honest hesitation, sucked its mouth, and then I reached under my nightgown, began slowly working it into himself. I had never wanted to see this, but I came immediately and hard, He brought himself to the end of the show, manually. I held my breath, waiting for him to come on the new sheet. I'd have to wash it again. Who cares? I do. Just a little. Just enough to ruin each day. And then, with a swift and professional gesture, he grabbed the bowl and came into it. That was what the bowl was for.
1: That was Emma Klein reading The Metal Bowl by Miranda July. The story appeared in The New Yorker in September of 2017.
0: The New Yorker Festival is back and it's our 21st year. Undeterred by COVID, we're coming to you virtually with a fantastic lineup and you can enjoy it all without even putting on your shoes. Chris Rock is joining us, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin too, and a performance in conversation with Fiona Apple. There's also Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Eric Holder and many more. You can find out everything that's happening and buy tickets at newyorker.com festival. Again, that's newyorker.com festival. See you there.
1: So, Emma, what would you say is really at the heart of this story? What, what is the main issue we're going through with this narrator? Is it a question of, of intimacy, of sexuality? Is it something
0: else? I guess to me I I thought more about intimacy and sort of w- what can we truly expect in our intimate lives with other people and our intimate relationship with ourselves and our idea of ourselves.
1: So right at the beginning of the story she says this this narrator says as you were mentioning earlier you know in my essence I'm a stone unmoving for 10,000 years. Do you think that that inertia is that sense of inertia is something she was sort of born with? Is it a choice or is it a response to what's happened in her life?
0: I think in some ways it's just, it, to me, it it makes a lot of logical sense as an emotion to have about being sort of a sentient human in this world. And to me, that's a very logical response, I guess. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think of it as something must have happened to make her feel this way. I think the character is someone who's uh, articulating this very reasonable just response to being alive and just sort of the relentlessness of life and of time. Um, I mean, there's one section I think a little bit later when she's talking about 4 p.m. or 6 p.m., just these times of day which are particularly for some reason terrible and sort of (laughs) open this void of uh, nihilism and just sort of relentlessness. And I really loved that in the story. So I guess I don't think of it as passivity. I think of it more as just someone who's like acutely sensitive to being in this world.
1: Do you think that that viewpoint for her, which is so different, clearly so different from her husband's viewpoint makes is what makes it hard for them to connect?
0: I don't know if that's what makes it hard to connect. I I think there's definitely little moments where you see the husband is just kind of ready to get on with things. I think there's even a moment where he's like, I'll, I'll just go get this sheet. When for him it's just an errand and for her it starts to take on this existential weight of you know once it goes on the to-do list it starts gathering all of this dread and anxiety and which also felt very familiar to me (laughs) but uh and i i've definitely felt that before too that that i'm so jealous of people who can just sort of get on with the business of living um and i think alex as a character is happier and sort of he's less inert, sort of moves forward happily. Um, but I, I don't know if that's the source of their, I, I don't even want to call it a rift between them, but just sort of this this space that they can't quite bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, she seems to almost talk about it being just the function of being in a relationship, that there will always be this kind of space between two people and A relationship as kind of this attempt to break that separation but also kind of this like blind this blind faith that that is even something that's possible
1: right you're just digging in the dark hoping to come out at the right point
0: yeah such a good vivid section of the story too i love that part there's
1: something about the way that she sees alex or talks about him that's So conflicted, you know, she has this line about wishing Alex had known her since she was born or wishing he were pregnant with her. She could just be inside Mm -hmm. him. And at the same time, you know, she is that stone. She does keep herself unknowable. And she sometimes looks at him and thinks, what are you doing in my house? And he has to introduce himself (laughs) to her. So there's a sense of sort of complete absorption into his body. And then complete separation from it.
0: Yeah. This story makes vivid a lot of things about relationships that you, like just the idea that these people are in in these private universes and sort of orbiting and you get closer and then you recede. I think she's very good at writing about the ambivalence of that too. On one hand, yeah, like you said, wishing that that this person could literally raise her (laughs) From
1: from <laughs> he would have been eight. He's not too young <laughs> to take care of her, <laughs> keep Which her alive.
0: I love. <laughs> it's so funny, um, and like this desire for romantic love as a kind of like saving uh, orientation and this ultimate redemption, and someone will finally know you in every you know the, they will have you inside of their body, but at the same time, yeah, not being able to fully. Show yourself or, I don't know. There's an interesting moment where she talks about him as like, his emotions are classy, something funny.
1: Uh, oh, it's when it's when she's saying she showed the video to all of her boyfriends except that one came along who was too classy for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was too
0: classy for it. And there's these, it's kind of this projection she has about him. This story that she tells herself about who he is that prevents her from being able to share. I, I just think so much of this is so interesting. But, like, uh, the stories you sort of tell yourself about these people who are around you and how you're sort of limiting yourself in that way. Like, he's not too classy to understand the video. <laughs> and he sort of shows that at the end in this really like both like funny and as she said it's like funny and grotesque in a way but also just like compelling scene.
1: Yeah. Well so let's step back to the the video shoot. How do you how do you read that scene? She's she's there willingly. She's doing it for the money. She's grateful to be able to earn money that will free her from her awful relationship. And she's you know constantly hoping not to accidentally activate some latent feminism in the cameraman (laughs) Um,
0: is is she being exploited i don't think so and I, i think that's another thing that excited me about the story when i heard it is that this it wasn't sort of posited as this thing where where you felt like this is going to ruin this person's life or this is like something very shameful or this is something like too hot to really like look at head on, like too hot in terms of like the topic is too fraught or I don't, I don't know. I thought it was handled very sort of matter of factly, but also with the same sort of emotional granularity that she applies to her other relationships in the, uh, these other scenes. And I think it, it, it's a really funny scene, too, which I also really like. Like the scissoring gesture, <laughs> the idea that the cameraman's going to cut this opening. Like, it, it just gets me. So it it gets and me.
1: And then she wants to cut <laughs> in case someone thinks her T-shirt is racist. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> it's just like what I think it does really well, too, is like just the total ordinariness of bodies and humans. Like the fact that she's wearing that stupid shirt and like sandals, like there's no getting out of these mundane human experiences even in these moments that are so extreme in a way it's like how she wants she wants a costume she wants to somehow feel that this is apart from her real life right. but the thing about it is it's not and like that's that's what i think is so well done in the scene
1: yeah something does happen you know in the course of that shoot which is that somehow all of her future sexual life becomes oriented around this video. Why do you think that happens?
0: I thought that was really interesting, too. Also, like, funny, but also... It was an interesting version of female sexuality that felt really weird and, for that reason, felt very true. Like, the idea that you would triangulate your sexuality around being these people, too, as well as being yourself. And... This is going to be like a broad generalization, but I think there's something about being a woman, being often the object, that can estrange you from your own sexuality in a certain way. So I think this version of sexuality makes a lot of sense to me to sort of be both the subject and the object in this way. And I think in that way she has a lot of power, too, because she turns the dial up and down on her own objectification for herself
1: yeah except that she can't really turn it up without the help of of this video or or imagining the people who've seen it yeah there's a lot about directly or indirectly dealing with objectification in the story you know even the very opening of the story you know alex is talking to her butt Um, (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know having a conversation in which he tells the butt it's more fun than she is so yeah. it, it doesn't get more objectified <laughs> than that in no, a way.: No, um, though he's the, the classy non-objectifying man. Um, yeah. And in a way, yes, she objectifies herself by watching the video. One of the nice things, nicest things about this story is that absolute refusal to pass any judgment on anything.: um, Yeah.
0: I think that's something I I loved about it. It felt very humane in a way, just that then everything was accepted. But I guess that doesn't mean that it's not like a finely tuned observational story where people, you know, the narrator has these really piercing observations. There's a really funny moment where she's like, where she's dancing. There's like a moment of dancing at the mall kiosk to a woman's ringtone, Right. And it's such a funny moment. And then sort of the way she she works with the dialogue right after or the the narration right after being like was that okay? Like I don't know. Like who knows? Maybe, maybe like maybe it's fine to dance. Like that's sort <laughs> of the the emotional tone for me of the whole story. Yeah. And it it just I think that's partially why I had such a strong response to it. Just like So deeply humane, which felt to me what fiction should be.
1: Yeah. Deeply humane, and then also hard to kind of parse and sort of think about each moment in it. But why do you think that those moments when she's recognized are so invigorating? You know, the blood starts flowing, her body becomes hers again. You know, it's just, it's total strangers being sort of creepy.
0: Yeah, yeah, the, the dad making the scissoring gesture down low. I mean, it's funny because the other time it happens, I guess there's one, the times when she's talking about being recognized from the video have this effect. And then there's this moment when she's with the neighbor that has the same effect. When um, he hugs even her. Though he, yeah, even though he hasn't seen the video. Again, this is like where I think there's something about fiction that I really respond to where it's so mysterious to me. Like, I I don't know that I could parse the emotional math of these moments. I wonder if it's partially, like, these are the moments when, with the strangers, it's sort of uh, this, this external story about herself, this video, which is her and not her, and sort of the thrill of other people seeing this imagined version of yourself. And with the neighbor, it's sort of this feeling of that story... That your imagined self meeting your real self,
1: yeah, or or it's something about being internally recognized, feeling completely recognized. Yeah. I mean, when it happens with the the neighbor, they've had this conversation in which she feels their their minds are one, you know they're they're thinking the same thing at the same time and experiencing the same thing,
0: yeah, it's funny because I think for me. Reading a story, that's that can be like a deep pleasure. Uh, you know, I don't read for a moral or a lesson or, or like a puzzle, but I think I read for these moments of recognition. there are so many of them in this story, and it's funny because it's kind of also what the best version of love is: is sort of being able to describe the world and have someone say, "Yes, that's exactly right," and you come to this understanding. Um, when so much of life is not that is sort of everyone sort of bumping clumsily against each other with our <laughs> own sentient like worlds that so rarely intersect.
1: Yeah. I suppose there's a sense that that these people in watching that video have kind of seen the real her and that, you know, afterwards she said that what she'd sold in that video was was her naivete so there's a sense that was the last time she was naive about something and they've seen Mm -hmm. it they've sort of witnessed that and yet at the same time it was the entire video is completely faked you know it's not that she Mm -hmm. she couldn't feel anything she's she's just simulating Um, yeah and then it becomes the one thing that makes her able to feel something
0: physically yeah there's an interesting like moment where she's talking about when she thinks that she's being recognized by this actor, this famous actor, which I also love. Like, it's so bizarre. I love that she thinks it's André Bellage. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just such a peculiar reference. Yeah. And, like, there's so many little things like that that you just wouldn't think could all be in a story together. Like, André Bellage, like, Bed Bath & Beyond, like, Amazon, like, <laughs> the luxury sheets. Key, like, all these things which I think in a in a traditional like maybe when i was in college it would have appalled me to think of a story where andre belage was like <laughs> a referent because i i thought that fiction should be this very sort of lofty thing separate from the world with all its banalities and that's what i loved about this story she's so good at keeping the world vivid in its and its banal, mundane, you know, you have to go get a tent light at the mall. Like, there's nothing more mundane than that. But also managing to make it really transcend. And if anything, like, the moments of transcendence get so much more power because the building blocks are just, you know, the regular, like, stuff of life. Yeah. Although André Bellage is not, like, a regular stuff of life, <laughs> I guess. Somewhere else,
1: but the 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 image of her wading through Bloomingdale's to get to the mall, like like <laughs> someone you know going through the all the heavy coats in the closet to get to Narnia, That's fantastic. Yeah. What do you make of that of the last scene? You know, they've gone through. They, we've gone through this whole story. We've gone through. We've come to understand her sexuality. We don't really know much about Alex's, except we assume it's you know so called normal. Mm-hmm. Um. And in a way, perhaps she, she takes a note from from Joel and that she sees how he has pulled their experience together into his marriage and used it there, you know, where she always detonates things in the place where she first finds them. Yeah. Um, and she pulls this into her marriage, and it's kind of a last-ditch effort to uh, to make contact and, and make those tunnels connect. So wh- what happens when Alex does this reenactment
0: <laughs> Yeah, I think it's such a uh such an intimate gesture. But th- but then you I think he really sort of steps up in in these last scenes. And there's a moment where she thinks that he's basically that he's judging her that by telling him this story she's ruined things. But then he really he, he returns and sort of willingly puts himself through this sort of embarrassing, peculiar gauntlet, as she called it earlier. And it's this offering of vulnerability and tenderness. I I really liked it. I think it's a surprising ending in some ways.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, not to give it too, too straightforward, a psychological uh, sort of reading, but... If you think about what she mentions from her time, her years pre-video shoot, you know, she refers to her parents as narcissists and her boyfriend as, as quasi-abusive, punching walls um, and hitting her with chairs. She wasn't quite set up to be emotionally healthy, really. Yeah. So in a sense, you you could see that this, that this video ca- catches her at a moment of, of sort of formation, and those are the previous points of formation.
0: hmm There's so many moments of people totally missing each other or her, the narrator misreading the situation, like when she thinks the next-door neighbor is a famous person, when she thinks that he's recognized her from the video, and then in this moment when she thinks that they're sharing this kind of silence, and then suddenly has this realization, or she thinks she does that they're having two totally different experiences. And mm-hmm. she's been building this sort of story, and he's asleep, which I think is kind of her fear about intimacy in general, that you're in these relationships, and one person thinks you're awake and and the other person is asleep and And talking about just the loneliness and cruelty of feeling that you are alone in the world that That, you know, you're sort of trapped in this, in this, I keep saying subjectivity or, yeah, just your experience of life and you won't ever be able to intersect with someone else's. But that long ago, uh, she says, Alex had saved me from this black hole with the kind of understanding that makes everything else in life possible. So you know that they did have this at some point.
1: Yeah, but then perhaps her failure to, to bring the video into that made it imperfect
0: yeah i don't know either this is like like esther perel stuff i think (laughs) where it's like you know sometimes it's good to have these secrets uh you know and so much of love and is is like can you have this vision of yourself where where you're a little bit estranged from each other um but then i i don't know she she sort of oscillates back and forth that sometimes it seems to give her a lot of sort of charge to have this this secret or this sort of estranged self. But then it seems like at the end of the story, there's something that's greater than that, which is yeah. this sense of sharing.
1: Yeah, I mean, talk about having a, a secret sexual life. She walks around for days with the sense that, that Joel's little penis is going in and out. I know,
0: which is also, that's like a very <laughs> Nicholson-Baker moment for me, which I really like. Nicholson Baker feels similarly like somebody who writes about sex so, like, almost without any, it's like if you wrote about how you thought about sex when you were 12 years old or something, without, like, any of the adult uh, sort of narratives about how sex should be, just, like, I think it's so interesting, and they're both so great at it, and it's really funny but also, like very accurate feeling for its weirdness. Yeah,
1: it's interesting that in this story, every every sexual moment is solo. Um, oh yeah, you know, mm-hmm. perhaps being watched, but uh, not it doesn't involve touch of someone else. Yeah, you know, whether it's in her imagination or whether it's it's in the video or even Alex's final final moment.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's where the metal point. bowl
1: comes in. So (laughs) this metal bowl, and it's the title of the story and it's something Mm -hmm. she it turns up twice and she's confused by it the first time. And at the end, she finally understands it. Do you you think we should see that as as a symbol of something?
0: It's definitely not my first uh, impulse is to sort of think about what the metal bowl means. (laughs) Yeah. Do you do you have like a sense of it? Beyond it being
1: sort of that moment of clarity at the end. here Oh, here's a use for this thing, you mm-hmm. know, that I've had in my life, been haunted by how confusing it was. And suddenly there's a use for it. And now everything's right. You know, there's a sense of sort of rightness, I guess, mm-hmm. surrounding that final
0: <laughs> you know, yeah. use. That makes a lot of sense to me in terms of like an emotional tone, like wh- yeah. where to leave a story. Yeah, I think... She she's so good at pointing out these things that sort of have no meaning. It's like when she says, like, once you noticed it, like the stains on the sheets, like you couldn't not notice it, like yeah. ants, like everything, which I think is maybe how I would describe her as a writer. It's <laughs> like she's so good at noticing that stuff um, until you can't not think about it. Yeah. Um, and then so to have this moment where one of these sort of aberrations then sort of finds a home in terms of having a purpose that she can understand. It's a, it's a nice place to leave the story.
1: Yeah. So I asked her um, last week what she remembered about the experience of publishing the story, and she said, "Let's um, just quote from her email." She said, "I felt like I was out on a limb in terms of content, revealing feelings I may or may not have had, and then and and then in the days after it came out." Nearly every woman I knew, every married woman, wrote me an email that bordered on a confession, including many women I don't know that well. I can't think of another time that I've been more reassured that I'm not alone in my thoughts and feelings. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, that's kind of what's so nice about, or what's so nice about these moments in the story, too, is like people wanting not to feel alone. Which sounds when you say it like such a sentimental thing, but it's so not. And I think when in that moment when she's with the neighbor Joel and talking, you know, all bodies are good. Like, well, why am I not a hugger? Like, this is these moments of connection, and she's just really good at undercutting what might be treacly or sentimental. Yeah, um, and it, it makes a lot of sense to me that people's reactions to this would be that feeling of being seen. Um, or that feeling of understanding, because that's certainly how I felt hearing it. I was uh, listening to it with my younger sister. We were driving. She's 22, and she was quite scandalized by the whole story. <laughs> but I was sort of weeping. I was so overcome by it. Yeah.
1: Well, thanks so much for doing this.
0: Thanks, Deborah.
1: Miranda July is the author of the novel The First Bad Man, a story collection, No One Belongs Here More Than You, which won the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award in 2007, and the nonfiction work It Chooses You. She wrote, directed, and starred in the movies Me and You and Everyone We Know and The Future. Emma Klein's first novel, The Girls, was shortlisted for the John Leonard Award from the National Book Critics Circle and the Center for Fiction's First Novel Prize. She's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 2017. You can download more than 140 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including one in which Miranda July reads and discusses a story by Janet Frame, or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcasts section of the iTunes Store. On The Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find The Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.